Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in a slightly unusual location, which we'll talk about in a moment, with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Morning, Mark. Morning, David. I say an unusual location. We usually have lovely ambient background noise at the start of our walks of birdsong and tinkling rivers. Today it's the M6. <laughs> Classic, isn't it? We're close to the River Petrol, and all I can hear is the noise, the rowdy noise of diesel. <laughs> it's cruel. It is. It's, it's an unusual one, isn't it? But there's a purpose and a reason behind starting in this urban fringe, which is we're going to have a walk in the woods today and transition from this very, very busy, congested area into a magical place in the north of the county. Yeah, this is it. It's a transition. This whole episode is about transition uh, and the loss of things and the reconnection with things. Who is our guest today? Give us a very brief introduction to who we're going to be joined by, Mark. Well, the development uh, and recruitment manager of the Cumbria Wildlife Trust, Jamie Normington, who's a a great enthusiast. He makes me look like a half-hearted soul. He's a real enthusiast for the natural history of this area. We should also say part of the reason for our our walk in the woods today, Mark, is the colours at the moment are absolutely fabulous, aren't they? Oh yeah, this is it. Everything is golden at the moment, or yellow and tinged. We're just at the cusp, the sharp end of autumn now, where everything on the leaf litter and everything is just like a wonderful array of colour. An array of colour and crunchy leaves underfoot. And actually today, after a fairly grim day yesterday, blue skies this morning. I don't know if you had a bit of frost uh, up your way, did you? Oh yeah, a bit of frost, just a hint up in Geltsdale where I live. It was three degrees actually in the car as I came, so it had perked up a bit. Winter is in the air again, isn't it, Mark? Mm. Right, so from this little lay-by at the side of the M6 here, we're going to get away from the traffic and the noise, Mark, and we're going to go for our walk in the woods. crunchy place isn't it Jamie well this is great to meet you here I'd like to know a little bit about you where do you come from and what is your connection my name is Jamie I work for Cumbria Wildlife Trust I originally grew up in Bronte country in Yorkshire and I moved to Cumbria to take a job on with the Wildlife Trust I've been there for 10 years now Mm -hmm. my connection with this place is actually quite complicated in a way but the simplest way to explain it is we're going to end up walking through one of the nature reserves Cumbria Wildlife Trust look after but we're starting in probably one of the potentially ugliest places in Cumbria Mm. because I don't think they should be overlooked. No, quite not. Now, you came from Home Firth area, and what drew you up to Cumbria? I was actually working over in Durham, and I was thoroughly miserable. So I escaped to Cumbria on every opportunity. So it was actually being miserable in Durham and led me to live in Cumbria. We have a great love of Cumbria on Country Stride, so we fully accord with your thinking on that, Jamie. Now, your walk today, where are you leading us? Um, We're starting uh, underneath the M6 at the moment. We're under the middle lane of the southbound carriageway of the M6. 
alongside the River Petrel, and we're just going to head across a couple of meadows into Rio Woods eventually uh, with a break in Rio Village. We'll be going into some of the oldest woodland in Cumbria um, in, in a matter of moments. Fascinating. And they've got this lovely old bridge here. There's it New Begin Bridge, I think it was called, uh, which was a sign of the old way that, that travels. Uh, towards Dalston, right in the depth of the countryside, long before the M6 came on the scene. It was a, a forgotten way to the well to the south of Carlisle. But now we're right in a, a maelstrom of traffic now. And the intrigue is, of course, the name Ray, or Rhea, yes. as it's yeah. properly pronounced. It looks weird to people, but uh, there's like, there is a village of Dock Ray, uh, which just means the corner where... Uh, probably burdock grew and so rear woods actually is a corner of the river petrol this goes back a long long time i'm always interested in why we find ourselves where we do why did why does anyone live there why did anyone live there in the first place and there's all kinds of things notably it's about the water there was a fresh water source in the village that was used up until the 1930s still and and that initiated people living there but it's in the bend of the river, the, the Ray or the Rear, which is to do with that, that geographical feature, I guess. Um, the river's played a huge part in this area and continue to do so. And our struggles to actually try and manage this river, we're going to pass into what's technically the highest level of nature classification once we go into the woodland. Um, but as you can tell, under the motorway, we're far from that. And yet, oh, that little bit of birdsong potentially could be what I was about to mention. Um, just across the canal that we're kind of looking at here under the M6, there's a nest built into the, the concrete of the motorway, which is a dipper's nest, a rare river bird. And, and, and that, to me, what, what are we, 100 metres from the car park? And Absolutely. we're seeing a bird that people travel miles to watch. There's a dialect word, a Cumbrian dialect word for a dipper, which is duca. Oh, okay. <laughs> there's a dukadale. Uh, at Kobe yes. Stephen. Yes, there is. It'd be nice to be able to get away from a certain sound at the moment. So yes. we <laughs> let's get back to the wild. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Lovely that, Jamie. Just come through a little kissing gate. And we're by the charm, gentle, serene waters of the petrol. Just come out of the meadow into the edge of woodland. It makes me reflect on this transitional point about this story behind our actual podcast, which is The Lost Words. Mm -hmm. For listeners who are not really tuned into what Lost Words is all about, you know, I think it was 2007 that it was pointed out that the junior Oxford English Dictionary cut out a lot of words, many of them to do with natural history, because youngsters were using words like podcast <laughs> <laughs> it's all your fault <laughs> yeah. uh, as opposed to the the fundamental things yeah sure so the words that we, we noticed we started to lose are the words that are nearby seasonally we would be thinking about bramble now acorn conquer um in different parts of the year bluebell then you get into things that maybe are a little bit rarer but we've a chance of seeing today otters and kingfishers and so on along the river so we've got the animals the birds the flowers there um, and I think that was the surprise. Everyday words like dandelion, wren, starling, just gathering for murmurations now, all being taken out of dictionaries. So these words, at some point, someone's made the decision that they're no longer useful. People either don't care or don't notice or don't recognise or have no use for them. Um, but we know that's not true. We know there's a tremendous interest in wildlife. A real key figure was Jackie Morris. And this yeah. is a woman who decided 
from visiting schools and working with others that she needed to do something quite drastic and her particular skill was illustration mm. so she actually turned the words into illustrations she drew them she drew the lost words and then she asked people to help Robert McFarlane being one of them she asked Robert for a foreword for the book and he said I can probably do a bit more than that and they, they worked as a partnership then so Jackie's skill as an illustrator, capturing the magic of wildlife, Robert's um, ability to translate that for a wide audience, really launched The Lost Words as, as quite a phenomenon now, I'd say. I've got a copy of this enormous book, but it's a treasure. It's a huge book. You stand up and just open it up in front of an audience and you can hear them gasp at any age at the pictures. Um, they can't see the, the words from 10 metres away, but they can certainly still see the pictures. And the key for me was recognising, actually, when I worked with others, the power of the book. Because to me, initially, it was just a book. But when I saw how people responded to it, the, the poems that you mentioned, actually, Robert's really worried about people calling him a, her poet. Yes. So he calls them spells as a bit of a yes. get-out clause. But then he turns that into, you read them out as a spell and you'll summon something. I, I led a walk once, and it, rather than a boring kind of health and safety risk assessment, I just set, showed them the picture of adder, another lost word, yes. and said, this is an adder, don't touch adders. Ten minutes later, half the group came across an adder, um, which, which I've only seen an adder once, um, and I missed it. Yeah. I was too busy managing the group. Yes. But, but that, to me, was this idea of you've made people aware, they've gone and looked, and they've also known what it was and what to do, yes. all because of a picture. Anyway, we'll continue along this muddy path, which is winding by the river, and see how far we get into the woodland itself. muddy here then Jamie goodness me well that's a transition from the meadow we've now come through a gate through a muddy patch right at the corner of the field where obviously cattle congregate and we've come into the edge of the woodland now so where are we Jamie this is the the northern end of Rio Woods Nature Reserve so this is managed by Cumbria Wildlife Trust I think it actually belongs to the County Council oh, yes. um, we often manage land on behalf of others and manage it for the purposes of wildlife mm -hmm. um, but yeah it's going to be muddy we're down by the riverside in a beautiful river gorge now I can't see anything for for autumn leaves at the moment and mm. we're going to start picking up on the bird song now because we're in terrific habitat yes. different times of year but the birds are going to be a constant for us today obviously going to be a range of woodlands well this is classed on both sides of the river um, really is I think a site of special scientific interest so someone singled it out now that could be for all manner of things it could be geology it could be flora it could be the fauna of an area specific species um, critically for us this is a remnant of ancient woodland that used to stretch from Penrith all the way to Carlisle imagine 20 miles I think in some ways forests were sometimes saved because people had them for hunting or people had them as a buffer zone I think mm. potentially Eventually, it was a buffer from the Scots coming down to, to sort us out. Mm. And this is what's been left. So the question then becomes, well, why was it left? Probably very difficult to farm, probably very difficult to do other things with, but we must be grateful it was left. Mm. There used to be so much more of this, and there's so little of it, especially in North Cumbria now. Mm. Um, if you look at the, the Ordnance Survey maps, you'll see how the green just peters out as it turns into largely agricultural land and different land uses. What we'll find with it being a river woodland, we've got trees that are happy to have their feet wet. They're happy to have water around their roots. So specifically, we're going to see lots of alder trees, lots of willow trees will come to very shortly. Both of those trees had very 
specific uses. Willow was terrific for making coracles, for example, very flexible for weaving into baskets and other useful items. Alder's tremendously water-resistant, so it was used for things like bridge pilings and creating jetties. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in the Lake District, I suspect that came in very handy. But I know it's been used worldwide as a terrific thing to use in wet situations. intriguing Jamie looking at the post on that kissing gate uh, it says the Miller's Way it's got a date on it what was it 1831 to 2006 now what's the Miller's Way this is particularly relevant to Carlisle but funnily enough I've traveled from Kendall today yep. just as Mr Carr did back then um, now Mr Carr came from Kendall to Carlisle he didn't walk I think he came by horse and cart but he set up what is now the, the, the biscuit and cracker business in Carlisle, the history of the cracker packers, the, the, the people who worked in the factory, um, and I think also links possibly to the flour mills out by the Solway as well. Ah. And, and this was to commemorate that, that whole connection of Kendall through to Carlisle, effectively what used to be two separate counties, mm. as Cumbria now together, and, and the, the, the journey that he took to set up this very significant business in the area. Very intriguing, isn't it? It's a very low-key little story. Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, this is, this is only 13, 14 years old, this path, and I think it's already becoming forgotten. And, and that's, a, that's a real shame, because these long-distance paths, they have a particular relevance to me. I walked the coast-to-coast -coast for the Lost Words. That was my, my fundraising appeal, to buy lots of these books um, for, to, to provide to schools. So I was interested in alternatives to that, and, and started to look into you know, the Miller's Way, or the Pennine Way, or the Cumbria Way, or the Dales Way. Uh, it was the coast-to-coast -coast for me, because I'd never done it, and I mm -hmm. wanted to do something new and challenging. Right. Um, but I'll walk the Miller's Way one day, because it, it'll undoubtedly take us to places we wouldn't have found, such as these woods. Just about here, the motorway in the background, we just passed a bench, and I noticed there, Jamie, there was what looked like a bit of a hollowway or a trackway beneath what looks like coppicing. Yeah, I brought a charcoal worker called Tony with me to look at that because we were trying to work out. Obviously, it's been worked at some point and coppiced. Now, we coppice from a nature point of view. We want to open areas up to sunlight at certain times a year. It's part of that process. But that's historic. That predates our involvement with the site. Certainly, the trackway in and out does too. Mm. So it makes us think that people were working that area for a long time before us. We're just playing our part now. Mm. And they were doing it because they needed to do it. We do it because we... we feel other things need us to do yeah, that coppicing work. It's a steep bank as well. And uh, we've come up on a sandstone cliff some 10 metres above the river, uh, covered with uh, moss and various things. You can perhaps describe this. It's interesting, thinking of back to the lost words, what I can see everywhere is ivy. Ivy is a lost word in the book. <laughs> um, there are people who love trees who think ivy is a terrible thing that brings trees down. It's actually fabulous habitat. It's fabulous for bees at this time of year. Birds are going to eat the berries soon. Just behind us with ferns. Ferns, another lost word. Yeah. I think we've got polypody behind us as well as different ferns on this sandstone. And... Looking round, I can see at least five different, six different species of trees straight away because we're in a truly natural mixed woodland. And those trees are doing different things for different creatures at different times, providing different food, and that's how things should be. Behind us, we have a lovely old oak. Certainly above us, we have holly. 
I can see one I don't recognise. I'd have to get a book out onto that. We've got some interesting planting in here, as well as it being an ancient woodland. Mm. Um, but we've definitely passed a beautiful old cherry. That's kind of interesting. Cherry don't often fruit this far north, I don't think. And then down by the water's edge again, we're starting to see the alder come in, which are fantastic for birds like siskins. Mm. There's stumps there that look as if they've been cut, coppiced. Yeah, a coppice stool, a tree will be taken down low and all the life in a tree is just underneath the bark so it sends the shoots back out in these new stems of coppice growth and that's a good example. You can see we've got 15, 20 foot of very straight timber coming out on several several places, a fantastic product you could take from that. Coppicing's an interesting one for me because people might think often, oh, well, you can't possibly cut trees down if you're interested in wildlife. And coppicing isn't actually cutting them down. It, trees that are coppiced live longer, interestingly enough, because they they're not trying to sustain a huge body. Um, they're, they're just regrowing and regrowing and, and probably being coppiced every 15 years or mm. so in, in some cases. Mm. And they can live for far, far longer. They're, they're being treated in a respectful way mm. and they're contributing to more diverse wildlife around as well. Mm. Gee, I love mud. <laughs> I'm a countryman. <laughs> Now, I, I, my, my wife worked at Udale School in the middle of Carlisle, well, the western end of central Carlisle, and um, she found that youngsters, uh, they went to Bits Park or they went to Hammond's Pond uh, uh, or they went knocking around the estate or went shopping, and they're only a mile from being in rich countryside just like this. And, and it ties in with his last words, doesn't it, really? It, it definitely does. Kids love coming to places like this. They, they actually ask permission for things you would just assume they take for granted. They ask right. if they're allowed through the mud. They ask if they're allowed to take photos of trees. Mm. So they, they don't feel at home here. Mm. They don't necessarily feel in danger, but they don't see it as somewhere that's for them. Yeah. Or that it's somewhere that, you know, is this all right, what we're doing? Well, mm. of course it is. Now, you brought youngsters to this particular place as well, from Carlisle. That's right. Um, I mean, we're 10 minutes from Carlisle city centre, effectively. And what I want people to do is take pride in the places they live. Carlisle has magnificent parks. It has some great green spaces. But then you compare it with this, and this is altogether a bit more risky, certainly a lot more muddy. But this is where we're going to find some unusual birds that rely on riverside woodlands. We're going to see some fantastic displays of spring flowers. Um, you, you get the questions of, what's that bird with an orange beak mm. coming out naturally? Because it's things that they've never seen, but, mm. but live here, you know, all around them, really. The big thing for me now, at this time of year, would be, where do all the leaves go? Just pose that simple question. Why aren't we up to our necks in leaves? There are millions of leaves dropping. What happens to them? So then you talk about the creatures that use them, that take them down underground, how they're recycled and their energies reused in the ground and things can grow. I've seen something recently from um, a leading sheep farmer in the lakes who's, who's suddenly become obsessed by fungi because he's realised the importance of fungi to the soil health mm. and, and to everything that his farm relies on. And what's interesting to me is about 90% less people listen to what he says about fungi than admire pictures of his sheep. Um, so we've, we've got a way to go, but he's, you know, he's doing the right thing and he's spreading a new message, which actually him and his sheep depend on. Now, you bring youth parties from the youth club. Yeah, we were very lucky to make contact with Carlisle Youth Zone. It's the city's main youth club. They have terrific youth leaders and volunteers, often from the university, that help out. And, and all we said is, well, we'll... we'll, we'll come with you and see what happens and to be honest we didn't really know how it would work but it's a 
fully inclusive youth club, people with all kinds of um, issues and, and, and special needs at, at times, and actually bringing out a mixed group that can support each other and enjoy a place like this and, and contribute to conservation work was a revelation for me. You know, I'm a tired middle-aged man. And actually, <laughs> and going out with these youngsters who just looked at things anew and wanted to know. And in some cases, recollected things from 20 years ago that in their own lifetime, they've forgotten, they've lost. Mm. They were recalling things that their grandparents had introduced them to when they were really young and, and being babysat for. This is a recent issue. Um, it, it, it's not quite as, as um, long-running as we think. This is happening very quickly that people are, yes. are losing that connection. How did this come about, do you feel? I think there's two or three key things. Um, I think there's a commercial aspect to this. I think if we look at people now, they do go outdoors, they have wild adventures, but invariably they book it, they pay for it, they ask someone like me or someone else to take them. They're not doing it themselves anymore, so it's become an idea that you can do it if you can afford it or if you can find it or if you can make time for it. So there's a commercial problem there. I think the next one is the idea that if you go anywhere, you're in danger these days. Now, whether that's traffic on the roads or strangers lurking in the bushes, um, there's a completely disproportionate response to high-profile cases um, where things have gone horribly wrong for children, they've been abducted and so on. But that's definitely played a part. People feel unsafe. As the number of people out and about decline you then do lose that sense of safety. We, we've seen perhaps a dozen people as we've walked today. So this yeah. is not a deserted place. No. But you can imagine there would have been a time, there would have been many more people passing and going, and you would have known people in this area. Yes. So perhaps you would have felt safer there. And then there's a shared sense of space. You look after it better because you all use it. Yeah. So I think there's a commercial aspect, there's a sense of loneliness, there's a disproportionate sense of danger. And then it ends up being somewhere you simply don't go. Yeah. And then all the problems stem from there. Great spot this, isn't it, Jamie? Now, I've got this love of place names and so forth. All these lost words that exist actually in language and how we identify Cumbrian plants and animals and birds and so on. I mentioned about dippers as being dukas. What other lost words are there, you know? Well, the, the, the big one, especially in this particular place, there will be two. I'd probably focus on heron, but heron and kingfisher, great riverside birds. And, and heron becomes really interesting to me because they've been around for so, so long. They've got incredible historical connections. Mm -hmm. And um, I was speaking to someone in, in South Cumbria around herons, mm -hmm. at which point they said, um, we know them as jammy cranes. Oh. And, and there, was a, there was a confusion between what's a crane and what's a heron. And it was yeah. interchangeable as cranes started to become extinct here and hunted out, I guess. Um, they became all one. Uh, and actually the farm nearest to me has a jammy meadow, which sounds marvellous, doesn't it? But yeah. the jammy meadow is actually the heron's meadow. Right. And there are still herons living there in the dead trees along the, the waterlogged field. Um, the herons still thrive. So it's interesting to me that the herons give their name to the place, yes. but then it becomes lost as a jammy crane and people yes. don't know what that is in a jammy meadow. Near Coniston there's Tranearth and near Appleby there's Tranricks. And that refers to the heron in both of those cases. If I remember rightly, heron is associated with cowardliness. 
There's a really great book by Francesca Greenoak, All the Birds in the Air, and it traces back names and ideas around birds and folklore. And I believe because herons are good at avoiding conflict, they were seen as a cowardly bird. And there's someone who served Edward III, uh, a most warlike king, but they served him heron at some state dinner as a way of saying, you're a coward. And it's these coded messages in what you were served, um, which, which I think is, is fantastic because, you know, why that came to be, I don't think anyone would consider a heron as a coward these days. I think they're fantastically clever. They barely move until they need to eat. What a marvellous life. <laughs> we'll go a bit further and see if we can spot some of these birds. And then a heron, we might see a kingfisher. Good chance here. Well, there's a, quite a specimen beech tree there. And of course, now it's beautifully rusty coloured. But all around it, there's uh, silver birch. Yes. And there's some sheaths there. Somebody's planted. Is that Cumbria Wildlife Trust? Yeah, that will have been volunteers with our charity. I think it was a young woman called Sophie Cort who will have worked on this. This is a tough location to be working. As you get your eye in, you can see the tree protectors up the, up the fell there, up the, up the gorge side. We've got, as you say, beech on one side. We've got some ash regeneration down in the bottom. The birch are a pioneer species. Birch aren't very long-lived. They only live as long as people, I think. And, and people generally assume trees live for centuries. But actually what the birch is doing is working an area back into woodland. It's part of succession, part of change. Mm. What we're doing as people is then thinking, well, those trees are going to be gone in our lifetime. Let's introduce things which the birch will provide a nursery for and protect around mm. them from the elements. Sure. These trees will actually move in and take over after. Afterwards. Um, and these ash trees, of course, that, that we know in Cumbria, ash dieback is really taking a hold and it's a trauma. So what do we do for succession to keep the diversity going? Because that, that's what we're after, diversity now. There's some brilliant things being done by the Forestry Research Unit at the Forestry Commission. Um, I've seen it down at Western Burt Arboretum. Mm. They're planting trees from other parts of the world because they're trying to predict what our future climate will inevitably turn into mm. and match it to other parts of the world which they think we'll end up being like. Mm. So the trees that are commonplace perhaps in parts of China or parts of South America, they're, they're suggesting possibly they'll be the replacements for trees that we're destined to lose, mm. whole species that we're destined to lose, be it climate change, be it disease, um, habitat change. And I think that's really interesting because the, these may even be trees we won't recognise that we've never heard of. Um, they're not kind of related within the same species. Um, ash is a huge issue for us because there are locations where people think 30% of what you see are ash. So you're talking about one in three things disappearing. Ash is often in hedgerows. You're going to have hedges looking like rows of gappy teeth as the mm. ash starts to suffer within them. Um, but what do you plan to do instead it's such a tough question and, and the research is ongoing right. i think the best lesson i read about in forestry terms in history it was the chap responsible for growing a timber resource and he, he planted a, a huge number of a certain species that i think they all promptly keeled over and died he planted something else and by the time they were ready boats were no longer made out of wood <laughs> um, but but how do you know what's going to happen in 30 years 40 years time the rate of change is so fast so again even with ultimate you know funds and no restrictions you can come really wrong yeah. over time and and that to me is fascinating and that's something i try and talk to young people about that um by all means grown-ups are there to look after you but they might be making mistakes <laughs> a little footbridge there there's uh, quite a substantial way over that little side stream. 
while we're in great territory to discuss otter now, right down by a nice steady part of the river, um, otter. Otter's probably one of the biggest success stories of conservation in Cumbria, Mm -hmm. in that we've got an animal that people like to know about, very rarely see, lots of folklore, lots of interest, um, various famous TV presenters who seem to Mm -hmm. major on otters as I was growing up, like Terry (laughs) Nutkin and so on. The thing with otters is they were disappearing. And they were disappearing because the rivers were getting into a state. And they were getting into a state because of how we were managing the land. So there was a project there. Rather than go, what do we do with otters? It was actually, what do we do with the land? Because that's the connection. And by changing practices on the land, by educating the wider public, we could actually have an effect on the rivers. And by affecting the rivers, the otters came back. And everything works out. And that, to me, was one of the biggest best things that I think has probably happened in my lifetime in that otters are now in every river in Cumbria they're seen in oddly bizarrely busy situations like the waterhead at Ambleside but the fact that they're in every river in Cumbria shows such a transition from what we were to what we can become in a short space of time sounds colossal to me and I know they're in the Gelt where I live so that's an it's a minor stream in many respects but it's not as if it's doing a micro achievement it's a monster achievement yeah, it's truly a county-wide success. I think the key for us was to accept that things we put on the land, whatever we put onto the land, be it chemicals, be it slurry, be it um, things that we do in our own gardens, it all goes somewhere. And ultimately that is often conveyed by water and it ends up in places like this. So we had to think about how are we treating the land beneath our feet? And that touches on farming, it touches on land managers, estate owners, people with gardens, business developers, it touched on everybody. And we all had to change our approach to how how we treat the ground beneath our feet. Well, we're coming more or less towards the end of the woodland here. We're by the, what is the A6? Well, that's a Roman road. That's the main road from Iboricum, York, up to uh, Lugiovalium, Carlisle, the main connection with the frontier. So we're right at an important area on that sense, in Roman sense. But uh, this nook, this bend in the river we're coming to, that is the rear. And there was a Roman fort up there. We can't see it when we get there because I know it's just an open field. Uh, and there's a Roman signal station up here as well. So you've got real history here. Interesting, the name Petrol reflects in the name for one of the forts in Carlisle, which is Petriala. Ah, no, I didn't know that. Yes. I didn't know that. I'm, I'm hugely distracted by, as you say, the living history. We're clearly under a huge conker tree looking oh, yes. at the leaves on the floor. I can't Absolutely. see evidence of many conkers left. Um, but I, I love conkers. Conker is a lost word. Yes. But it's our link with the people who brought these things over. Conkers are um, a tree, a horse chestnut tree, are actually native out towards Macedonia, Central Europe. Right. They're now becoming endangered in their own native range. They, they don't thrive there anymore. Mm. So it will be the trees that were introduced by the people who moved over here and, and brought them with them. That's where they're actually thriving now, as all these things changed. It's like the Romans, they came, they saw, they and they conkers. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've come out of the woodland where uh, the Kissing Gate with the Miller's Way sign on it. This is only the second one we've seen, actually, uh, underneath some beech trees. And we come onto a meadow, and uh, now we'll turn over a footbridge. There's some trees bowing over the quite deep waters here. What are these trees then, Jamie? 
These are what I've been looking for, because <laughs> there's a lot more out there, but these are older trees. Oh! And you'll see they've got tiny cones on them. I think it's the only broadleaf, actually, that has cones. Right. Whereas I tap it, these small seeds drop out. This right. is the, the time of year Dark it's releasing purple. its seeds. They've got airtight compartments to help them float down the river to find oh. somewhere new to grow. Yes. And they, they can be slightly oily, I think, which is possibly to do with water resistance. Yeah. Now, with alder in front of us and willow on the other side, alder and willow are great pals. They love yeah. living. You can see the roots down in the water there wet feet yes and there's a story that there was a there's a great feast of the natural world one day where everything <laughs> gathered yes. and alder and willow a bit like me and you mark just stood and stared into the water for a while too long <laughs> and someone decreed that uh, well if that's if you're not paying attention you can stay there forever and there <laughs> there we have it alder and willow lining the river banks and that's where you'll find them across to the beech trees and now got wonderful sunlight on them now yeah, wow this is the glory of the English countryside. At this time of year, suddenly, it's like a wonderful oil painting. It's magic, absolutely marvellous. Great time to be out. Well, we wandered up from the valley, the petrol valley, up through the meadows, over the railway, into the village of Rear. Wonderful little village on a green. And uh, we sneaked into the plough inn, <laughs> had a lovely lunch. Don't know if we deserved it, Jamie, but we did. And we got the flagpole here uh, by the church, which is a very distinctive one. We'll have a little chat about that in a minute. But the flagpole is significant, I think, in a way. What was the story there? Well, I think what happened is they had a flagpole that they realised they couldn't actually run a flag up. Mm -hmm. And then they realised they wanted to do that, so they serviced the pole, but then realised they had no flag. So someone got together and decided to design a flag based around the fields and the sunshine, pipes to represent the 12 men of Rhea, the, the kind of village elders, so to speak, and have a good traditional flag for their own village. Um, by some weird coincidence, they had a connection to an Australian flag maker who had a connection to a Norwegian business who was about to head out to the South Pole. So the Rhea flag actually arrived in the village via the South Pole, via a chap in Australia and a business in Norway. So it's a very, very well-travelled flag, and it's now on display in the pub, which connects this tiny little part of Cumbria with, well, let's face it, three or four corners of the world there. And we're by the pump at the edge of the green. Now, what's the story here that's interesting? I think this is the... Ultimately, we, we talk a little bit about why is anything anywhere, and it was a, a water source. There was a water source that came up, a naturally occurring spring, I think, in the village. This pump's still connected to it, and this was used as the village's entire water supply right, right. up to the 1930s. And so everyone would gather around and get what they needed for the day, I guess. Um, there's actually a connection underground all the way from the village to Carlisle Cathedral, a tiled aqueduct that conveys the water of Rhea down to Carlisle Cathedral as wow, well. Isn't that fascinating? It's a beautiful, beautiful little village green. You know, within three steps, we've got this incredible flagpole, this bizarre pump. We've got um, a pine cone we'll come back to, no doubt, and and, uh, and the church just opposite. And beyond the church, there's a replica of Bewcastle Cross, a Northumbrian 8th century cross. Uh, the, the pine cone, stone pine cone for the millennium, 2000. Uh, what's the symbolism of the pine? Well, the, the pine cone, I think, came really it connects beautifully to the church that we'll we'll visit shortly the pine cone was really a symbol sent back from afghanistan to a lady called sarah losh 
ultimately the lady responsible for the village's incredible church. Um, she was someone who approached the 12 men of Rhea and, and said, I'll, uh, I can see your church is in disrepair. If you leave me to it, I'll sort that out. But if you want to get involved, I'm not interested. And she, she set out on her own with the, with the help of people she selected to create a really fascinating and unique church. I, I, for my money, it's the best church in England. It's so curious, so unusual, and ultimately it only exists because of Sarah. These 12 men of Rhea, who are these people? I think they were predominantly the landowners, the influential people of the area, possibly the farmers and the state owners. Um, so they would be concerned, I guess, with the village's health, sanitation, education and so on. And ultimately, they'd be the ones who got to decide things. So we have an interesting situation. There are 12 guys in charge of everything. And, uh, and ultimately, they were confronted by a single woman who told them exactly what she wanted to do. And, uh, and they saw that she was, uh, she was the right kind of person to work with. Absolutely. Uh, a dozen men uh, and uh, the church doesn't get built uh, <laughs> unless it's fire Sarah Losh. Well, have a quick look inside there. Yes. Yeah, let's go. Coming up through the gravel to the front of the church, which has a, a remarkable look to it. You've got the eagle at the very top and then uh, surrounding the three windows, there's plants and uh, fossils. Uh, and birds. If you look at the left window, yep. you've got corals and ammonites, and I think there's a nautilus. You know, these are really rare, interesting, odd Victorian bits of natural history study yes. that have found their way into the church. Different plants, different bugs, and then, as you say, the birds, as well as the more traditional eagle. I think Sarah Losh, who designed and built the church, she was influenced by a grand tour where she saw churches of different design in Italy and other countries. But then... The cliche these days is you make something your own, but no one's made anything like this other than Sarah Losh. So Sarah Losh, who was the total inspiration and funding source for this amazing, very personal uh, evocation of all these influences, who was she? Sarah Losh was um, a local girl, ultimately, um, part of a family, a wealthy family, but an incredibly um, forward-thinking family, a very, very forward-thinking woman. Um, interested in science, geology, history, travel, other cultures, other influences, and clearly here natural history as mm. well. And she, she brought all those different interests together, which would actually pose challenges to various people, I would suspect, in a church framework. Um, but she did that because her, her particular pitch was, I will build this if you leave me to it. It has to be built the way I want it. Mm. So I think that's really fascinating. It wasn't just a question of, I've got the money, so therefore I get to do something. There was a big, big, strong push for how I wish it to be designed. Even on the outside, you were aware that there's something special. But let's open that door. Yeah, let's go ahead. Hope they haven't locked us out. <laughs> yes. nope. Ooh, lucky. And on the wall, immediately to the right as you come in, is a painting of Sarah Losh. And it gives the date 1785 to 1853. Builder and benefactor of this church. We've left the nave and we've come up into the chancel. And we've got an altar and a perfect apse around with arches and you can see right through to the daylight, but they've got features in each one of them. Everywhere there's a sense of design. 
I think the surprise in here is just over your shoulder there, there's actually a bat. I'm not convinced that bats are typically found, well, obviously real bats are found in churches, but they've taken the trouble to carve a fabulous bat on the column there. I think it might be significant of um, things of the night in the best sense of the word. But then the next takes us on to plants, different kinds of flowers and botany. Um, above us, these are fossil records of things that were discovered in shale at the time over in Northumberland. So there was an acknowledgement of fossils and of, of, of historical discovery of nature, of things yet to be explained. And, and yet we're in a, a little village church. So that's the marvel of it to me, that we'll have the standard things you'd expect, but you'll have things that will absolutely confound you. It's an absolute amazing gem. It's, it's a treasure for me for various reasons. I mean, the thing I've mentioned first is that it was built in an unexpected way. It was, it was designed and built by a woman. It was designed and built with, with artistry at the front of everything. And it was designed for a community to use. So there was a massive generosity there. So it wasn't a vanity project. It wasn't overblown. It's incredibly detailed, whether you look at the, the dragon as a chimney pot or, or the snakes and the bats and the fungi and the flora around us. Um, it's, it's absolutely unique, I think. People travel a long way to see things like this without realising it's just down the road in Cumbria. Mm. And, and the designs are, are not... They're semi-influenced by classical design, but actually it's, the, the influence is far more natural, sourced, so that um, it is unique. And there's a, there's a lovely sense of connection with place here. There's gargoyles on both sides of the church. On the south side, there's one with great teeth on it. And there's one on the north side. Uh, you were telling me it has an unusual quality. Yeah, I think there's a sense of humour here. Um, they were obviously just part of the design. But the one that you mention is actually a dragon. And it's the top of the chimney for the stove down in ah. the corner of the church. So as and when the stove's lit, the dragon actually breathes smoke, which um, <laughs> a curious thing to find on a church. It is. It's not a new pope with a white smoke. No, this is breathing real fire. <laughs> Nice to come down by the mausoleum and this replica of the Bewcastle Cross. It looks a bit tidier than the one uh, at but there again, uh, it's covered in motifs and very symbolic, a Northumbrian 8th century cross. Um, anyway, we've got to that critical time in our little journey, which all our listeners will know all about, <laughs> the quickfire questions. Uh, and before the sun goes down, Jamie, could you tell me your first Lakeland memory. Yes, trying to cycle up Skidder and realising you really can't, or you couldn't on the bikes back then. So we diverted and, and rode round, halfway round to Skidder House and back again. Saw Whitewater Dash, all surprises, all fantastic. So what would be your favourite fell on that basis? My favourite fell varies, because I've yet to discover a few of them. I've not done all the Wainwrights by any chalk. I, I like, I've always liked Blencathra. I've always liked Blencathra, but there are issues around Blencathra where we might say it's not the most wildlife-friendly fell. Mm. So I like to go and find places which have something unusual about them. You're probably going to find me more likely up Helvellyn, and I'd be looking for mountain flowers up there, nesting ravens, and, and things that are truly special, as opposed to the crowds that you might run into. Right. Wordsworth or Wainwright? <laughs> Wordsworth, not for me, I'm afraid. Um, I'm trying my best to improve myself, but I think I'm well ensconced in the grumpy old man category of Wainwright. <laughs> so where's your favourite view in Cumbria? 
Favourite view is from Hardnock Fort, um, looking down towards the sea. I think that's just incredible. You see the ancient field patterns, again, a place that no one thinks to stop because they're terrified of the road. But uh, Hardnock Fort, looking down through Estale, fantastic. Okay, you're absolutely right. It's got everything, hasn't it? Uh, Roman forts, everything. Um, if you had a Cumbrian hero, alive or dead, who would it be? <laughs> it's going to be Helga Frankland. No hesitation there. Helga Frankland, a little bit like Sarah Losh, Helga Franklin was a woman that contributed more to Cumbria than any of us will have the chance to achieve. She helped set up Cumbria Wildlife Trust. Um, she was a, an absolute genius in conservation terms, trailblazing woman with an incredible scientific and natural history mind. Those are the sort of people that not everybody is aware of, but once they do, they realise that they're all instrumental in making Cumbria what it is. Fabulous, a, a fabulous county full of wonderful people, past and present. So if you were Prime Minister for a day, what would you do to safeguard the natural world? I think the main challenge for us is time. Everyone feels busy, and that's different to being busy. We've got to address this idea that everyone feels busy. So we're going to have to clear out some of the clutter that we feel that's in our lives. I'm not sure how we approach that, but we're going to have to just clear out that clutter, allow people time. That gives them time to enjoy themselves, enjoy where they are. Jamie, it's been a true honour and pleasure to be with you today. I've really enjoyed it, and I hope we'll meet again soon. It's been a great day. Thank you very much. journey's end in the little village of Rhea and in the churchyard of that fabulous little church. Usual housekeeping, please do check out any of our past episodes of which there are now 21 at www.countrystride.co.uk. Please drop us a line. We're always delighted to hear from listeners. You can email us from the website or you can contact us via social, which is... Oh, Facebook and Twitter at CountryStride1. CountryStride1. Our next recording, Mark, is our Christmas special. Where are we going? Oh, God. Whitehaven. Absolutely wonderful. I think we'll probably walk along a bit of the coast path as well. And uh, we've got the honour of having Alan Cleaver who, if anybody remembers our episode on old corpse roads and our walk from Eskdale to Wasdale, he's a very good storyteller. He is, and we're talking about Christmas traditions, um, particularly around the mummers of St Bees, and we'll be talking about... There's a little Christmas ghost story off that coast, which we won't spoil too much now, but um, a range of uh, interesting Christmassy things that we'll bring together on our walk from St Bees into Whitehaven. And to play us out today, Mark, we are delighted to take the lost words theme that we've been talking about today to its conclusion um, off the back of Jackie and Robert's book The Lost Words uh, an album was um, commissioned a really lovely collection of songs written by a, a small collective of uh, musicians and they've written songs about some of those lost words and the song we're going to play us out on is a, a song called Willow it's from the Lost Words Spell Songs album. Do check it out. And, of course, do, do check out the lovely book as well, which Mark 
recommended earlier on. It's it's a lovely thing. Um, but for now, thanks for joining us on this walk in a, a part of Cumbria that I didn't know, which is truly magical. Without your water brushing, bow your shirt, you grain your nose. You don't descend like a mullah.